You're listening to a Red Bull podcast. It's Saturday, the 24th of June, 1978. Sydney's gay and lesbian community have spent the day at a protest in the city to mark nine years since the Stonewall riots in the United States. A march of solidarity with LGBTQI people worldwide. But there's something else planned for tonight. Something a bit different. It's the middle of winter, and just after 10 o'clock, people start arriving at Taylor Square. Yeah, the assembled time was 10 o'clock that night. Wow, okay. Uh, so quite late. Time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but not that many people turned up at 10, typically. Right. <laughs> so we were a bit worried that we weren't going to get a crowd. Because mm. uh, it was actually quite cold that night. Yeah, well, middle of winter. Yeah, mm. not that we have cold winters really, but uh, it, was, it was chilly. This is Robin Kennedy. She was there that night, rugged up in a duffel coat. Well, eventually uh, people did turn up mm. and we ended up with about uh, two or three hundred, I suppose. Others arrived dressed in makeup, costumes. One friend of Robin's dressed as a cowgirl and another as the Pope. Robin says that before that night, there were two separate but overlapping parts of the gay and lesbian community. Those who were campaigning for rights and others who stuck to the mostly underground gay party scene. Lesbians were more political because right. a lot of them were coming from a feminist background. Uh, and within gay men, yeah, some of them were much more political than others. So those men would be involved in camp or gay liberation, Whereas there were a lot who weren't really interested in that so much. They were sort of happy to just be involved in the bar scene, uh, even though there was some risks involved in that. Yeah. But that night, the gay and lesbian activists and the gay party scene crowd joined forces as they marched down Oxford Street, the strip of Sydney's East, notorious for its gay bars and underground clubs. They called it Mardi Gras a celebration in the street. Then as we marched down Oxford Street, some people joined in because we were chanting out of the bars and into the streets, among other things. Yeah. <laughs> so some people did actually join in yeah. the march. I'm Al Grigg, and this is Red Bull's If These Walls Could Talk a podcast about the venues, parties, and people that have shaped Sydney's nightlife. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record and recognize their continuing connection to land, waters, and culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. This season, we focus on the LGBTQI party scene, and in this episode, the street party that changed the Sydney LGBTQI scene forever and is still going strong over four decades later. These days, Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras is a glittering, weeks-long extravaganza, a festival that serves the wider LGBTQI community through balls, film, parties, and a massive parade. It's so woven into Sydney's identity now, but without that night in June 1978, this city's Mardi Gras would not exist. 
It all started with a letter that gay and lesbian activists in San Francisco sent out to their overseas counterparts, calling for a show of solidarity. The letter ended up at an organization called CAMP, the Campaign Against Moral Persecution. CAMP was established in 1970. It was the first political gay and lesbian rights organization in Australia, and, and it was a national organization. Branches soon set up in other states after New South Wales set up. Robin became involved in CAMP in 1975. It was International Women's Year, and CAMP applied for some funding to run two seminars on what was called female homosexuality. And it was actually advertised in the Herald. And I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw that. She went along to the seminar and found exactly what she was looking for. Then I just met all these people. And it was from then on that I became really actively involved. It was like what I'd been waiting for an opportunity to meet people and become involved in an organisation. By the second seminar, Robin was giving a paper herself, and not too long after, she was the organisation's first female secretary. We had our, our political action group, and we did a lot of political work, lobbying and advocacy, but we also did public education programs. It was the mid-1970s, and there were huge personal risks to being openly gay. In New South Wales, it was legal to discriminate against a person because of their sexuality. And male homosexuality was still a crime. Despite these risks, Robin was going into schools and workplaces to talk about being a lesbian. I actually hated doing that work. I found it very exposing, standing in front of what was sometimes a hostile group, saying, hello, I'm a lesbian, and having to feel questions like, but what do lesbians do? Uh, but I did it because I thought it was just incredibly important to raise awareness, to be standing there as just, you know, pretty ordinary looking woman, uh, so that they could see that because of visibility is so important, particularly at the time because so many people were in the closet for fear of losing their job, or being chucked out by their parents, uh, which of course still happened. Camp wasn't the only group in Sydney that came together in response to the letter from San Francisco. Activists in California were calling for a day of international solidarity on the ninth anniversary of the 1969 Stonewall riots in New York, a series of gay and lesbian demonstrations in response to a police raid on the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village. Activists formed a gay solidarity group and began to plan their contribution. During the day, they decided to hold a march. But then later on, in the evening, they wanted to have a party. I remember the conversation. I was there at camp. And it was actually Ron Austin's idea to have a street party. And Marg McMahon, uh, part of the conversation, and she said, oh, you mean uh, like, like a Mardi Gras? So it was Mardi Gras right from the beginning, uh, and that's the name we kept all those years. Not everyone felt comfortable marching in the light of day. Being seen at such an event risked exposure, which could result in losing your job or even being evicted. The hope was that the cover of night and makeup, costumes, would give many the confidence they needed to join in. But first, they would do what they always did, 
march to Hyde Park. Robin takes me back to where it all began. What we always do is have a protest march. <laughs> so we thought, okay, we'll have a protest march. So it was called Gay Liberation Day. And essentially we marched up George Street like we normally did. <laughs> and then I think we turned into King. Uh, and we had the usual banners, uh, gay liberation and gay rights and uh, decriminalised homosexuality and all of that. And it was, for, by our standards, it was a very successful march because we had about 500 people, which was a lot more than we usually got. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and of course, there were the bystanders who had no idea what was going on. <laughs> Though there was a small scuffle with police that day, Robin remembers someone's camera being smashed. Overall, it was seen as a triumph. A huge crowd of people coming together, chanting in solidarity. And I think anyone from the time will tell you that, that they'd been so lonely. Uh, but when they're finally able to meet kindred spirits, it changed everything. And you've suddenly found all of this confidence and so in a march, it was just totally exhilarating mm. to be with so many people like you who wanted to change society, who wanted equality and were sick of the oppression and discrimination. I mean, at the time, homosexuality was still classified as a mental illness. So it was really important to build our own community. And having those big gatherings was, was really part of, of growing the community where we could be together and, yeah, be really defiant, march yeah. up that street defiantly. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I guess too when you, you know, people want you to either vanish or they don't want you to be seen or everything's under the cup, everything's closeted. And I guess there's a real thrill and a power of being like, no, we're here and we're visible and we're being seen. It's very much about visibility and, and letting people see who we are. We didn't have two heads, we looked normal, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we did the same things as everybody else. We had families, whatever. Uh, so we weren't a rarity. Uh, so visibility was very important, as it still is. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that was a great lead up uh, to the nighttime march, because we were all in high spirits. Robin and I leave Hyde Park and head up towards Taylor Square. Oxford Street, which juts out southeast from the city centre, has been the mecca for Sydney's queer nightlife since the mid-60s. But in the 1970s, when Robin was at uni, it was mainly a place for gay men to party. We stop on the corner of Oxford and Crown Street, where Robin spent some time. Well, the first lesbian bar in Sydney was Ruby Reds, which was in Crown Street, Surrey Hills. It was a pretty small venue, and it had this incredibly steep set of stairs that you had to walk up from the street. And there was a bar inside and an incredibly small dance floor. You could fit maybe a dozen people and, of course, the mirror ball. But, you know, it was, it was fun to have our own space that was a bar. Ruby's was run by the infamous Dawn O'Donnell, who you'll hear more about in this series. Rumour has it that in order to keep her gay venues open, 
dawn paid off the cops. But even with that protection, it was still 1970s Sydney and hostility towards the LGBTQI community remained strong. We did have the police come quite often to intimidate the women and to extract, extract a payoff. And what they would do, and they would come in and stand around being menacing, and then they would block the entrance to the women's toilets just to intimidate everybody. And if you wanted to go to the toilet, they would just push you away until they got paid off, and then they would leave. Ruby's went for about five years, and then it became a gay sauna. And the other one that was the sort of main, it was in Surrey Hills, but it was on the corner of Cleveland and Elizabeth Street. It was called the Playground. And it was a much bigger venue, had a bigger dance floor, bigger bar, and more places to sit down. Uh, it wasn't exclusively lesbian, but mainly lesbian. There might have been fewer lesbian bars, but it wasn't because they didn't know how to party. During that time, it was much harder for an unmarried woman to get a bank loan than it was a man. And no one would invest in a business run by a woman, let alone a lesbian. But there's a tradition in Sydney. If people want to party, they'll find a way. There was a thriving lesbian community in 1970s Sydney, and you could trust that if a party was happening, everyone would find out about it. Because there were a lot of lesbian households, share houses. So each house, if they got a call about something, they had five people they had to ring. And then each of those five had to ring five. Right. So it was this way we spread the word. Or sometimes there would be a paste up of posters about a dance. Uh, but then that's what I mean about a community. I mean, the word would get out yeah. through our community so people would know and they would tell other people and then they would tell other people. We reached Taylor Square. Today, it's a busy intersection, cars turning off Oxford Street towards the inner west with a small grassy area and a couple of trees. Robin takes me back to that night in June 1978, to the first Mardi Gras parade. It's almost 11 p.m. It's cold, there's music playing, and everywhere you look, there are LGBTQI people bundled up in warm clothing or dressed in wild, colorful costumes. We didn't have so many banners that night because we did the banners in the morning. It was more about fun okay. and dressing up and a street party. And so the atmosphere was great. Robin, who has gone with the warm clothing option, stands in a duffel coat with her three housemates and her partner. There's a truck leading the march, a gay man named Lance Gowland behind the wheel. It's blasting music off the back, two songs on repeat glad to be gay and owed to a gym teacher. As the truck begins to move up the street, the crowd follows, dancing to the music, encouraging people to emerge from the gay bars along Oxford Street and join in. Okay, so you're, then you're marching down the street, you're yep. turning out of the out bars of the and bars, into the streets. Into the streets yeah. And uh, stop police attacks on gays, women and blacks. <laughs> and then the uh, unforgettable ho, ho, homosexual. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> the parade was meant to make its way down Oxford Street, stop for a while at Riley Street, and then continue on to Hyde Park. People were really having a good time until we got to Hyde Park. <laughs> Although the police actually were there during 
during uh, when we were walking down Oxford Street and they were trying to make us go faster. Right. And they were really harassing Lance, who was driving the truck that was playing songs, mm. to go faster, go faster, but he wouldn't, of course, um, and people wouldn't go faster. We right. just took our time. But So that got them even more pissed off, I suppose. So when we got to Hyde Park is when things went bad and the police confiscated the truck and dragged Lance out, oh. which is when mainly lesbians <laughs> pushed, pushed back against that. People were angry. They had a permit for the march for this nighttime celebration and it was going as planned. And they were ruining our party. So it was then that the cry went up, up to the cross. So we all tore up uh, William Street uh, and into Darlinghurst Road and to the El Alamein Fountain. Meanwhile, the police had really organised themselves and when we got there, there were just countless uh, paddy wagons at police wow. who weren't wearing their identification badges so they couldn't be identified and we sort of laughed at them really to start with like what are you going to do yeah. and people actually started to disperse because it was like well we're here nothing's mm. happening we've had a good night let's go yeah yeah but it was then that the police started laying into people when we were actually leaving. It was pretty ugly and horrible, but we fought back. 53 people were arrested and the party was over. The people got really injured. Yeah. Um, and then things got worse at Darlinghurst Police Station where some people were beaten up. In 2016, the New South Wales Police apologised to the 78ers for the way the first Mardi Gras was policed. But the pushback that night and in the months that followed would forever change Sydney's nightlife. Where before the LGBTQI community had been divided, it now came together. Yes, well, it, it didn't end that night, um, which sometimes people forget. That was the beginning of a really strong period of unrest, civil unrest. When the charges were laid against Mardi Gras protesters, there was a huge demonstration at the court and more were arrested. And then in July, we had another protest because by this time we had a full campaign called Drop the Charges, which was aimed at obviously getting the charges dropped, but also an end to police violence and the right to peaceful public assembly. And it was around that time we started to get enormous public support. So left-leaning organisations and civil liberties, uh, groups from uh, the women's movement, the more accepting churches, the trade union movement, all got behind it because it was starting to become a bit embarrassing to the government that every time we protested, a bunch of us would get arrested. And at our final march, which ended up at Darlinghurst Police Station in August, 103 people were arrested. Wow. So at that point, we were up to 178 who'd been arrested. 
And then when the charges were finally had come to trial, the following year in 79 in April, the police said they, they had lost all their files and the charges were dismissed. And shortly afterwards, the Summary Offences Act, which was the legislation the police had relied on to arrest people, was repealed. I don't think we ever could have imagined the sequence of events and the outcomes from that, or that the Mardi Gras would still be here. That first Mardi Gras, it, you know, it was a one-off for us. It was a fun party, uh, a little bit different to our normal protests. But had not those events occurred, there would not have been another Mardi Gras parade because the, there was a lot of opposition from within our own community to having the second one in 79. But how could we not after what happened at the first? Around the corner from Taylor Square, Robin and I sit in the window of the Stonewall Hotel as they get ready to open up. The hotel is named after the Greenwich Village institution, the Stonewall Inn, and the riots that happened there in 1969, inspiring the first Mardi Gras and kick-starting the gay liberation movement. It opened in the late 90s, so it's seen 22 Mardi Gras parades pass by its door, and it's seen the parade grow and evolve. One change that happened quickly was moving the party away from the middle of winter. You know, after a few years, we thought, oh, stop this, let's move it to summer. <laughs> it's too cold. <laughs> and it is much better in summer because, you know, people can wear skimpy outfits and stuff. <laughs> and for the first decade or so, there were more people marching in the parade than watching from the sidelines. I remember one parade where, I don't know why, but myself and some other people decided we'd be a drumming group. Unfortunately, none of us knew how to drum. <laughs> and we decided we would have leopard skin outfits, oh, wow. which uh, being unable to sew at all um, was a bit difficult for me. <laughs> so I sort of got some material and just sort of chopped it up and draped it around myself. Um, and somebody organised the drums and then we just beat the drums fairly tunelessly <laughs> up Oxford Street. So that was memorable for um, being pretty dreadful, I suppose, <laughs> compared to today's standards. In 1998, for the 20-year anniversary, the 78ers started to organise. And that was the first time the 78ers marched together as a group since beginning run in 78, 20 years. Uh, our history had been lost and we had a banner and all of that. So that was great. And we led the parade then for the first time. Um, so that was pretty special and moving really. Um, and then, you know, since then, of course, we've always been up front uh, and now behind the First Nations group, as it should be. And, I mean, we're getting a bit older now, so I still walk, but a lot of people need the bus these days. But that's OK. Let's go! Then, with the 40th anniversary looming, Robin felt the pull to get more involved. She was elected to the board of Mardi Gras in 2017. So I was on the board for two years. 
And during that time, I led the bid by Mardi Gras to host World Pride in 2023. So I did a heap, a ton of work in 2019 on getting the bid ready. She went to Pride marches around the world, pushing for an Australian World Pride and was in Athens when the event was awarded to Australia. Since beginning that process, I've subsequently become very involved in Interpride, which is the International Association of Pride Organisers, which I didn't think that I would sort of still be involved to this extent. <laughs> I find it hard to retire from this kind of work. And we're sitting here in the windows of the Stonewall Hotel on Oxford Street. Could we, could you maybe, you know, if you could imagine these, there's all the walls of these shop fronts, what are some of the most memorable things they would have seen at these Mardi Gras parades over the years? If they could talk, what would their story be? Oh, they would have seen quite different Mardi Gras over time. So the second one we had was pretty similar to the first, I suppose. It, it was much more political. Uh, and then over time, you know, then the costumes started to come in and the floats. And so people at, in those shop fronts would have seen, seen it evolve over time from, you know, pretty small group of people trying to achieve some basic human rights to this amazing celebration, this spectacular that is known the world over. And now, of course, it is totally amazing. Um, the costumes and the, the work people put into their clothes, like they must work on it all year. You know, these amazing costumes and dance routines and how they they put those costumes together. You know, they got wings and, yeah. you know, amazing headdresses that must weigh a ton. Uh, so it is an incredible spectacle. And the crowds are, are so generous. They, you know, they're all packed in and they cheer everybody, every single float, every single person that comes along. They cheer and clap and wave and you've got people hanging over balconies and. Uh, you know, we're shaking the rainbow flag, and it is an amazing experience to be to walk up Oxford Street and into Flinders, having having the crowd support you in that way. It's a pretty big contrast to the first one <laughs> where we got bashed up. <laughs> um, it's a wonderful thing. I hope it's always happens in Sydney. But I suppose it's still surprising in some ways that it's still going. Um, but it's evolved a lot over time, you know, it's an incredible spectacle. I've been to a lot of bright parades around the world and this is the best, absolutely the best. The parties, bars and scenes that now shape Sydney's LGBTQI nightlife would never be what they are had it not been for the battles fought by past generations. These spaces created a sense of belonging, of ownership, a way of loudly demanding the right to exist and to live a life full of celebration and joy, openly. Well, I think celebration is really important because it's self-affirming. Um, and, you know, many, there's many 
parts of our communities that are really still struggling, like kids in rural areas or people growing up in uh, traditional religious families. The celebratory aspect is really important for them. Uh, you know, to see everybody partying in the parade, it's, uh, it can be life-changing. Uh, because it's affirming for them of who they are and they can see that it's okay and people are actually having a good time, you know. So I think it is, it's a really important role to have that celebratory aspect and nightlife and all of that, that's part of community. It's, it's part of sharing joy uh, of who we are and acceptance and building community. Thanks for listening to If These Walls Could Talk. Red Bull is a proud supporting partner of the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. For more nightlife stories from the world of Red Bull, head to redbull.com forward slash nightlife.